He is risen. See, I always know who grew up in a in a in a um, in a mainline Protestant church because none of the evangelicals know that. <laughs> if you grew up Presbyterian or Lutheran or Methodist, yeah, or you borrowed some of that stuff, it's okay. Let's see. We have been working through 1 Corinthians 15 for the past several years for the main reason that I'm not clever and don't like hunting around for a passage every year on a special occasion. I like to find things that make my life easy. So since I, I, since I know that you guys remember everything that I say about these things every single year, we're going to recap. <laughs> See, because somebody looked at me and said, what did we do last year for Good Friday service? And I looked at them with a straight face and said, I have no idea. And I was in charge of it, planned it, and did the whole service. I don't know. I had to go look. Oh, that's what we did. I remember now. So, yeah. So I, don't be upset if you don't remember everything that we did. We will make sure we make sense of this. Paul has spent chapters 12 through 14 in this book outlining the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, why it matters, and how the church should function in light of that work. So chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians is all of your spiritual gifts and how that functions and what you're supposed to do. Chapter 13 builds upon that, explaining that Christian in church, dealing with other Christians, what should be the main attitude of your life? should be one of love because Christ has given you that commandment. 1 Corinthians 14 is then some of the working out of that in life and practice. And then smack dab in the middle of that run through, Paul gives the best exposition on the resurrection, its implications, and what it means in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So in 2019, we did verses 1 through 11 talking about how the resurrection is central to the Christian faith and that it is a historical reality. And again, I would encourage you to go read all of this at home because it will, as you know, do you very good. So there's a historical reality. Paul quotes himself, Peter, James, the apostles, and 500 others as witnesses. Paul's like, we didn't just come up with this out of thin air. We looked at the man. So did this guy and 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 this guy. If you want to list, send Paul an email and he'll send it back to you. In There you go. In chapter, uh, 2020, we did verses 12 through 19. Uh, denying the resurrection is a denial of the faith. Because without the resurrection, Christianity is useless and hopeless. I mean, what good does it do to follow a dead guy around? I'm not really sure that. I don't think you'd go really far if you started following a dead guy around, would you? I mean, boring. it would be real boring real quick. There's a reason why nobody has parties at the cemetery except like the weird kids you didn't want to talk to in high school, right? Do you remembering who they were right now? <laughs> so you're like, I was that kid. Be quiet. I had, I had one of those in my Spanish class. He used to wear his black trench coat every day to school and have his fingernails painted black and stick safety pins through his bottom lip. Yeah, and he chose as his Spanish name Cinco. I'm like, why are you named Five? <laughs> I don't know. I like the sound of it. And he, mm. <laughs> I often wonder. Yeah, I wonder where that. Maybe that's what he liked about it. I don't know. I often wonder where kids like that are today. You know, like, did you did you actually get a job that pays taxes? I wonder these things. Let's see. Last year, verses twenty through twenty-eight what the resurrection actually accomplishes for us, and then pointing to the eternal rule of Christ and how everything points to God. So you are all caught up, right? So with that in mind, we can dive into our longest section of this chapter, which is verses 29 through 49. You ready? All right, remember, I know you had breakfast. Kind of shake it out, make sure you stay awake for me. Be good for you, all right? Let's dive in. Verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Well, we just are going to jump right there into it, aren't we, today? It's going to be a fun morning when you start off right there. All right, let's do the easy thing first. Otherwise. 
Because Christ is raised, because the work of Christ's resurrection is a reality, because that reality accomplishes accomplishes things on behalf of his people, and because God will rule and reign over all, Paul is making an argument. So because all of these things that he has already mentioned in chapter 15 are true, we need to deal with the realities and what they mean. So that was the easy part. What do you mean, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Because you do that all the time, right? Like, you just go through the obituary page and, you know, then, like, grab one of the kids and be like, come here, get in the water. <laughs> no, okay. First, let's deal with the easy part, which is what this does not mean. Because sometimes it's easier to define something by what it isn't than what it is. And here's what it isn't, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God." Paul has been very clear about this in this letter to the Corinthians. He was clear about this in the letter to the Romans. He was clear about this in the letter to the Galatians. You are saved by grace through faith. So if you want your double, if you want to double check me on that, go read Romans 4 and 5. Go read Ephesians 2, uh, Galatians 1, 2, and 3. That will kind of put you in a good place. So we know that this is not a salvific practice. So that helps us in one regard. So what in tarnation are these Corinthians doing? All right. I have options. There is the possibility that they are being baptized on behalf of people. So someone was aged or infirmed, made a profession of faith, could not be baptized, and has died. So someone is getting baptized in their place as a proclamation for that person. It could be because of. So someone who discipled you, proclaimed the gospel to you, who has since died... You went to a funeral, you worked with other people, you've had more discipleship. Because of the work primarily of that departed saint, though, you are now making a profession of faith and you are being baptized on account of them. Could also mean, which unfortunately, um, historically speaking and grammatically speaking, this is the most likely one, that it means for the benefit of. And the problem with that is we have no earthly idea what the Corinthians thought they were accomplishing. We have no idea whatsoever, which is a good time. Okay, coming around the podium, you've been warned. It's a good time to remind you about some rules for your Bible. Okay, we have, and we covered this on Wednesday when we're going through Acts. Which, by the way, you're welcome to show up for the Acts Bible study. It's in your bulletin. You can find that. Um, especially in historical texts, which is any kind of narrative, you know, Acts, a lot of your Old Testament, the Gospels, you have to be careful to make a distinction between prescriptive and descriptive. Some texts are telling you to do things. Like there are times when, you know, Paul in his letters like, see with what big letters I'm writing. He's telling you because of who he is and the authority that he has to do something. Sometimes Paul is describing something. You'll see this in your Gospels. You'll see this in letters. I think right here you're seeing a describing. Paul's not prescribing them to do this. He is describing the fact that the Corinthians are doing this. We don't really know why. We don't really know what it accomplishes. We don't emulate this because this is the only place in the New Testament this is even talked about. And if you know anything about the letters to the two Corinthian churches, you know that the Corinthian church was really in trouble and had some weird and messed up practices. 
So just because they're doing it might actually be a reason to say you probably don't want to follow along with that. You want to lean into the things that Paul does tell you to do and not the things that he's describing that they did. And part of the reason why I'm going to land there, because by the way, pick which one you like and go with it. Just be able to make sure you can argue for it. I'm not going to try to convince you either way because it doesn't matter. What matters is the point that Paul is making because of this. What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Paul doesn't care why they're doing it. Paul doesn't care if we care why they're doing it. Paul is making a point to the Corinthians about the reality of resurrection and the fact that they know that it's true. How do we know that they knew that it was true? Because they're baptizing people for the dead in hopes of what? In hopes of a future resurrection. This is central to the Christian faith. We are following two lines of thought here. We are following the resurrection of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, simple rule of logic here. If there is a first fruits, there must by definition be what later on? There's got to be something else coming along. So fast forward what we'll do next year in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 52. I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will there we go. Everyone, so pinch the pinch the microphone wrong, and it it moves on you. So, this is one of those coming back around. You're being warned. This is one of those things that has to be central in your brain, otherwise we start going crazy here. Your hope in Christ is not for here. So I will pick on my daughter because <laughs> it's not often I get to tell a good family story, but I get to tell one because it literally just happened this morning. She came scurrying over to me and she goes, okay, um, what are we exchanging a cross for a crown for? Like, like I get what it means to exchange something, but what are we exchanging? So you're ready for 35 second theology to a nine-year-old? I said, easy, we are called to follow after Christ, which means we live for him in this world. We die to ourselves. We live our lives in this place as if we are crucified because we are dead. We do that now because we know in the coming kingdom that God's reward will be like a crown. Oh, that makes sense. And then she goes, scurries back to her seat. See, don't try to make everything complicated, Christian. Sometimes you tell children what... Children can understand and figure out. And you know who else needs to be reminded of things like children sometimes? Yeah, this guy right here. Because <laughs> you know who gets big into their head and thinking we're all smart and then we forget the simple things? We do. Our hope in Christ is in a kingdom. It is in a final resurrection. Our hope is that as we live, we can live expectantly in him and knowing that one of two things will happen. He will either call us home and we will be reunited to a risen, changed body at the end, or he will come back before we have to go through that. Either way, we're good. He does not forget any. He does not lose any. He does not forsake any that are his. That is why this matters, is an understanding that we live in this world, not just celebrating Christ's resurrection, but also looking forward to our own. When this that is broken is fixed, when me, who is just a mess, is put right and cleaned up, that's the hope, that's the longing, that's the living. We're going to keep building on this, so don't lose me yet. 
Verse 30, why are we also in danger every hour? See, Paul moves from the Corinthians to himself. Paul's point here, the reality of the resurrection is seen in whose life? His. 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, not in the California, Illinois way, but in the, like, with rocks way, just so you know. I was shipwrecked a night and a day I have spent in the deep. I'm sorry, three times I was shipwrecked. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. So if you ever wonder what it would look like to live on an old rugged cross, um, 2 Corinthians 11, we give you a good starting point. Now, why does Paul do all that? Fun little thing I read yesterday. This was, this was good for me. Um, the resurrection is real and verifiable, and Watergate proved it. <laughs> I, I laughed too, but he was serious. He said, seriously. See, you had 120 in the upper room. You had the 12 disciples, and they traveled everywhere. And they were beaten, and they were killed, and they were tormented, and they were tortured, and they had miserable lives, and they never once changed their mind or wavered. It took like 20 minutes of interrogation of the guys who broke into the Watergate Hotel, and they did what? <laughs> they like, he did it, he told me how to do it, and here's where the proof is found. <laughs> this is Paul's argument, actually. Why would I live like this? I had a good life in Jerusalem. I was a Pharisee. I was going to be on the Sanhedrin. I was going to be in charge of people, running things. People were going to come to me for wisdom. Now they come to me to throw stuff at me. What would you pick if you had the choice? I mean, no reason for Paul to go from amongst the muckety-mucks and the, you know, the, the they to the ones who are hated. That is part of his argument. Now, is this a primary argument for the resurrection? No, not in the least. You want to see the primary arguments? Go back in the book. This is Paul building his case. You recognize it in your life. You can see it in my life. Now, why does that matter? Never forget the reality of the human heart. Who made you? God. Why? Why? What is the, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, all will praise his name. All, those who are on the earth, those who are under the earth, those who are in the sea, all will praise. Humanity will glorify God because of his work. Do you know who knows that? Everyone. Everyone. They reject the truth and unrighteousness. This is why I tell you, you can go into the world and bear the truth, and you can go into the world and battle for the truth, because you're not arguing with them. You're arguing against the sin that is entangled, the sin that has deceived. You are changing hearts and minds by changing hearts with the gospel message and trusting that the Holy Spirit will do his job and accomplish his work. They're not the enemy. The ideas, the sin, the destruction is the enemy, and that's where we attack. This is why we can be innocent as doves. This is why we can die daily and not fear. One, we know the reality of the kingdom that is to come. And two, we know the reality of the work that the Holy Spirit can and does and will do on a regular basis as his people are faithful and proclaim. It is a strengthening 
This is what empowered the apostles to move forward. This is what empowered the church for the last 2,000 years to move forward. And this is what will empower the church until God returns or calls this all off. Which, you know, he's not calling this all off. He's got a plan. You can read about it in the rest of the book. And by the rest of the book, I mean, you know, this half of your New Testament. Because of that, we can because we know who he is and what he has done. That is part of Paul's argument. So he then continues in verse 31. I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. As he should, and and who else should as well, by the way? He and us. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Where did Paul come up with such an unusual theology? Like, who came up with that idea? As I've told you in James, what is James building all of his theology in his book on? Give me the Sunday school answer. <laughs> when, you, when you don't know what to say, just say Jesus, right? Now you're going to have that song stuck in your head the rest of the day. You're welcome. Until I come up with some bad 80s reference, and then you'll have that stuck in your head the rest of the day. Luke 9. Jesus was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. What does that prove? So, okay, you're dying daily, Paul. What again does that prove? We'll go back to the beginning of Galatians again. You heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. In other words, he was a who's who of the Jewish upper crust in Jerusalem. He was going to be one of the guys and he turned that all down for something else. What does that? What gets a human being to say, I like living like this. Now I'm going to like living like this. Has that ever worked for anybody in their own power? If you don't believe me, quit smoking. <laughs> I'm serious. Change your entire dietary structure. I mean, we joke about this all the time with diets. What, ha- what do you do to yourself the minute you say, I'm going on a diet, no more cookies. You go grocery shopping and look at your cart and what's it full of? Cookies. You're like, how did that happen? Like, I never, like you, you'll, you tell yourself you're going on a diet, so you go from buying one box to four. Because you walked through and you said, I'm not buying any of those. I don't want them and I don't need them and I'm not getting these. What are you thinking about? Yes. In my power, I am useless. In my power, I am hopeless and helpless. The Holy Spirit is who changes hearts and minds and lives. Always remember our formula for this. You try to change behavior, what's going to happen? Nothing, because the way you think and what you want hasn't changed. And then what happens? Like you go three or four weeks without the cookies, right? And then you go to some party and somebody puts your favorite cookie out. And you're like, I'll just have one box. (laughs) You You suddenly turn into Cookie Monster and you get the thing, the plate tilted, trying to unhinge your own jaw. There you go. I I cut down. I I went from four boxes of cookies a week down to three. Look, everything's great. How do we get the behavior to change? I have to change the heart. If I change your heart, what you are, what you desire, that will change the way you think about the world and what you want out of the world, that will then change how you live in the world. Now, short of, um, short of a saw, I don't know any other way to change people's hearts other than the work of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, what 
weapon do you carry into the world, Christian? You carry the gospel message because it's only the power of Christ crucified and raised on the third day to proclaim to a lost and dying world that actually changes them because that's the work that the Holy Spirit uses to change them. This is where we must land. In order to do that, you start with I die daily because I'm not smart enough. I'm not clever enough. I'm not, believe it or not, I'm not funny enough. I know that's hard to believe, isn't it? Isn't isn't that amazing? And I know I'm not because I live in a house full of people that don't laugh at my jokes. That's why I love you guys so much on a Sunday morning because you laugh at my jokes, which is probably not a good influence on me. But I'm not good enough. He is. I told you earlier, thanking you guys was the second most important thing I'd say. The most important thing I say is God's good at his job. He's awesome at it, and it is his work that changes lives. So get out of us. Let's carry the cross and actually proclaim his work. Why? Because how did it change you? How did you get here? Wasn't your wisdom, wasn't your brilliance, wasn't your work. It was his mercy and grace because of the work that Christ has accomplished. So let's continue. Verse 32. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If what we're celebrating today is useless and a lie, what has it accomplished? What good would it do you to die daily? See, this is... This is 2 Timothy 3 in perfect action. This is why there's, there is, I can understand, I'm going to get myself in real trouble here in a minute. You ready? I can understand every manner and method of church. I can. I can disagree with them, but I understand it. So simple case in point. Like I disagree with Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans on mode of baptism. I think baptizing little babies is the wrong way to go about it. doesn't make them evil. I think they're wrong. But I understand what their argument is and why they do it. I get it. I completely get it. There is one, I don't even think denomination is the right word to use, but there is one religious group that I cannot for the life of me understand. It's Unitarian Universalists. It makes absolutely no sense to me. It is the definition of 2 Timothy 3 in action. It is a form of godliness and denying any power. It's the Lions Club or, you know, like 4-H for adults. But they, I don't get, I can't for the life of me understand it. That's, that's what Paul is going on here. If I'm convincing the Ephesians what they should do because I think it's best for them, I'm wasting my time. You know what I should do? I should go party because how many trips around the world do I get? I get one, which means what should I enjoy? All of it. Because, I mean, I I might as well enjoy everything there is to enjoy. I might as well do everything there is to do because all that's ever going to happen to me is going to put me in the ground one day and that's going to be the end of it. Now, you ready for the wisdom of God? Anybody think there's a book in the Bible that actually discusses this sort of topic? Who wants to take a guess? Yes, Ecclesiastes. This is beautiful. This is why I love the modern arguments for the world. It's because God's like, yeah, you people are a few thousand years behind this argument. So so let's figure this out. I mean, Ecclesiastes starts out with what? Solomon, he's rich. What's it, 700 wives, 300 concubines. He's got a massive harem going on. He's got all the money you could imagine. Smartest guy in the room, so he's making all the good deals. And he looks and he goes, I decided to test myself with all the pleasures of life. And I denied myself nothing. Wine, food, women, fun, you name it, Solomon had it. And it was all vanity and striving after the wind. 
you go to chapter 7, in the midst of that testing, a good name is better than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. Was Solomon just depressed because nothing else in life made him happy? Maybe. But he's absolutely right. Why? Simple, a simple summation of what Solomon just said. Oh, that was good Baptist alliteration right there, wasn't it? Live your life from your deathbed. Because that is the end of every man. And Christian, apart from the work of Christ, there's no hope. But, because we can trust the testimonies, because we can believe what has been written, because we can believe those who have passed this down, because we can have faith because of the work that the Holy Spirit has done in your heart and mind, this is not the end. Therefore, live your life from your deathbed. Because while you walk now as if you are on the old rugged cross, what are you exchanging because of the work of Christ and because of the spurring of the Holy Spirit and the promises of God? That's the hope. And Solomon gets there at the end. It's the end of Ecclesiastes. When all has been said and heard, the conclusion is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's the punchline. Because this world promises you nothing. God promises you everything. And our hope is in the promises of God. And this is one of the reasons why your Old Testament is as long as it is. Because you need those reminders and you need the wisdom to see the failings of humanity and the perseverance of God. Because if he should have forsaken humanity, I'm sure you can find like 27 different examples throughout this Old Testament. You're like, right there, that should have been the moment. If I had been God, that would have been it. And yet, he continues. And yet, he continues. And he is faithful. Why? Again, this is one of my favorite Old Testament verses. It's Deuteronomy 7. Moses tells him, God didn't pick you because you were numerous. He picked you because you were tiny. You were the least of all nations. And because of the promises that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. In other words, God's redemption of you isn't about you. It's about him. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God. He redeems a people so that he may present them to his son, so that the son may glorify the father and say, no, these are for you, so that God may be all in all. This is the work that has been accomplished. This is the work that is being done daily. This is where we have to lean. This is why we can look at this and say, I agree with you, Paul. If that's our motivation, it's useless, but it's not our motivation. So continue on. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. Ow! Tell us how you really feel, Paul. I mean, they wouldn't write a book about that verse today, would they? Ooh, that's what we need to do. That's what we we got to write the book about that verse and sell zero copies. <laughs> because the realities of verse 32 are what they are. Because we are not living for this world, you need to stop living for who? You. First John 2. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, here's the most important question I'm going to ask you today. How? And this matters. Become sober-minded as you should. Stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. 
I'm sorry, Paul. How do I do that? If your answer starts with anything that you're going to do in your power, you are on the wrong road. What are God's terms in this battle? Surrender. Surrender or else. That's the warning. This is not a negotiation. God's terms are surrender. This is why understanding you live daily dying is so important. Because you don't accomplish. God accomplishes in you. How does that work? By you forsaking yourself, forsaking the things that you want, and living for a kingdom that is yet to come. This is why Paul could write about the struggles and the beatings and the drownings and everything else they were trying to do to him. It's like, at some point you want to look at a guy and be like, dude, just, just like for a day, just, just stop. Just for one second, just take a deep breath. We're going to go into this new city. We're going to have a nice breakfast. We're going to calm down. We're not going to yell at anybody. We're not going to proclaim. We're just going to sit and they're not going to kill us today. Deal? And Paul's probably like, you know what? That's, that's a good plan. Jesus Christ. Oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> Here we go. You know, the last beating hasn't healed yet. But why? I mean, think about the favorite Pauline Pauline anecdote. They drug him out of the city and stoned him to death. And then they're like, okay, he's dead. And they went back inside. And either Paul didn't die or God raised him again. I'm not sure which. And but Paul gets up, dusts himself off, and goes back into the city. <laughs> I mean. That is a stubbornness to which my children have not even yet attained. Which is an accomplishment. I'm convinced of that. They take after their mother. It's terrible. <laughs> but, in, I mean, you wouldn't, if, think about it. If that was you, like, you got up after they chucked the big heavy rocks at you, you'd be like, you know what? I got the hint. I'm going to go with Paul. like, who do they think they are? They need, these people need Jesus. And you know who needs to tell them about Jesus? Me. (laughs) Why can he do that? Because there's no fear. There's no worry. He knows what? That if the rocks had worked, I attain Christ. And if they haven't worked, then the Holy Spirit goes, we got work to do. Get your butt up. Let's go. There are things to do. Come on. So we work. For who? For God. Why? Because we don't have a choice. Because of what he has done. He has died on our behalf. He has conquered sin. He has borne our penalty, and he has walked in a newness of life so that we can walk in a newness of life. How do we get there? By following after him, turning from our sins, and trusting that the Holy Spirit who carries us along won't drop us. And we know that he won't because, once again, history, 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 history. I mean, just Exodus. We did Exodus, like, all last year, right? How many times did you want to leave Israel in the desert? Be honest. How many times you're like, you know what? Just, just park them somewhere and pick somebody else. There's got to be somebody who can do better at this than them. And the answer is there probably was somebody who could do better at that than them. That's the point. That's the point. Paul makes that very point to Timothy. This is why God chose me. If he can save me, he can save anybody. That's it's the one Bible verse you have permission to argue with. When Paul says he is the chief of sinners, you know what you should say? Nuh-uh, I am. I am. I'm worse than you are. Why should you say that? Because I can celebrate the great overcoming work that God has done. This is why I tell you, be honest about who you are and what you are, because it glorifies God. Not that you rejoice in your sin, but that you rejoice you have been redeemed from it. 
that the penalty for it has been set aside. The power of it has been yanked away, and you can walk in the newness of life. And you can look at that pile of mieux and go, that was me. Keyword, was. But by the grace of God, I am new, and I am clean, and I walk. So this doesn't start with me. This starts with surrender and turning to call out to God. Verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? Hey, I like that question. That's a good one. Maybe the Corinthians are wondering, hey, do we get the new iPhone or do we just get last year's iPhone in a different color this time for way too much money? Some of you are like, don't remind me of that. That's my, that's my new favorite commercial I see on TV now is, is the new iPhone is now green. <laughs> I'm like, does it do anything else or is it just green? <laughs> just a reminder, every time you look at it, this thing costs me. Yeah, And, and that horrifies me because I looked at cell phones a while back because Cameron and I's cell phones are about four or five years old. And I remembered cell phones being like three or $400. Yeah, I did the same thing when I looked like 1200 You people are out of your mind. Out of your absolute mind, I'm looking at mine going, don't break, don't break. I love you, don't break. <laughs> so, good question, right? What, what does this look like? Well, I keep reading. Verse 36 and 7. You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. Never mind, not a good question, not a good question at all. Why? Because you live on a cross. You live dead in the hope of what is to come. Now, where is Paul getting this analogy from? Well, again, Paul is building his theology on whose words? Yeah, I say, somebody say, somebody give me a Sunday school answer. <laughs> Jesus, I'm awake, I'm awake. No. John 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Let's summarize this really well. The reason why it's a dumb question is because you don't drive forwards while looking backwards. You're like, have you seen the people in Rockford? Yeah. Yes, I have. And now you know why they can't drive. Actually, I, I, I learned why all the people who can't drive can't drive is my favorite joke as we were coming back around Thanksgiving time from Cameron's parents. And you know those signs they have that tell you whenever there's like an amber alert or a silver alert? They had the one up there. It said, only turkeys drive drunk. Call a designated driver. I'm like, I just figured out why nobody can drive on the road. They're giving driver's licenses to birds. This makes perfect sense. Apparently, they only give driver's licenses to alcoholic birds. That makes even more sense why they can't drive. So yeah, no. you don't drive forwards while looking backwards. That's the point right here. You live your life not always looking at what you were, but looking at what you should be. Luke 9, someone came and said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. How? What's his point? Hate your family? No. Love God more than everybody. This is one of those advices. Isn't this the advice we give to newlyweds? Is date someone who loves God more than you? Because otherwise, you just found where the idol in your life is going to be. You just found where the idol in your family is going to be in your marriage, with your children. And you've seen these families. I love my children more than anything. Oh, that's going to be a problem. 
I don't know what I do. Stop right there. I get the sentiment, but you'll follow God. In Christ, you'll follow God. That doesn't mean the road is beautiful. Sometimes it looks like a nice Rockford city street. <laughs> and you're all like, I, I, I just healed from that wound. Why does that matter? Because you live now on a cross. Was it supposed to be comfy? Was it supposed to be fun and happy? No, it doesn't look like a Monty Python sketch. Don't sing the song. <laughs> I told you I'd come up with another one to stick in your head, didn't I? No. The reason it's a bad question is because, Christian, I don't care. Who do I live for? And that's where the hinge comes in right here, verse 38. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. This is very, very important in this argument for Paul. In whom do you trust? God. For whom do you live? God. Well, what might that mean for this? Titus, chapter 3. When the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. That's not me. Um, Araceli. Can you, um, on that soundboard over there in the far right-hand corner, there's a purple button, M3. Press it, please. Who left an amp on? <laughs> Hang on one second. I know which one it is, I think. Uh-oh. It was one of them. <sighs> you were looking for the alien spacecraft for a second there, weren't you? There you go. <sighs> Let's read this again, Sally. Not the whole thing. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they, unpro they are unprofitable and worthless. See, this matters. I know, now something else hums. It's always something. It's always something. Um, nah, never mind. It'll be all right. That one, I know what that is. <laughs> so what's the point? doesn't matter. There it is. doesn't matter what that life will look like. It matters, or it doesn't matter what that body will look like. It matters who will create it. And because it is done by God, it will be done well and good because that's our hope. That's what we're living for. We're not living for ourselves. We're not living for our accomplishment. We're living for him. So continue. Rapid fire time. You ready? All flesh is not the same flesh. 
But there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. These are also heaven, I'm sorry, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly one is, a, I'm sorry, but the glory of the heavenly one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. Okay. Okay, Paul, what's your point? You ready? This is, this is. Important existential truth. You ready? Some things are different than other things. <laughs> Whoa, dude. No. <laughs> why does that matter and why do we care? Because, Christian, this is part of the distinction between us and them. And that's why he'll continue on. Verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. That's the one you're walking around in now. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Remember the truth of the gospel work, that God actually accomplishes something in you. You are saved from something and you are saved to something. 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And that corruption of who we are and who we were is only undone in Christ. Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Again, that's why that hinge was so important in 38, is you trust in him to accomplish, you trust in him to do, and you trust him for the outcome. We recognize that now we are not what we wish to be. And we have to trust that as the Spirit carries us along, that the promises of God in Christ are good and will be revealed, and what will be will be good and right. Even if I can't understand it and see it, because we go through this. Like, how is this stuff going to last? And the answer is, it's not. Not meant to at this point, but it will. How? I don't know. Ask God. (laughs) Because that's who's going to do it. And as long as we trust in his work, remember, who's really good at his job? God is. Amazingly enough, the creator of the universe can accomplish some things. So we lean and we rest there. Let's continue. Verse 45, I can speak English. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. If you're like me, you read that and go, where is that written? Well, it's, it's the Paul poetic version of Genesis 2. The Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So that's Paul's version of the message of the Old Testament in Genesis 2. What's his point, though? His point continues. Where do you come from? God. Then and now and in the world to come. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. This is why you got to love the wisdom of God. He nails the problem. Do you start there? Do you start with God, who he is, and what he's doing? No, you typically start with who? You! (laughs) And who's the problem again? You! 
or me. I mean, yeah, since you all said you, I'll just take the blame for that one. <laughs> I am honest about it. Therefore, because we don't start where we're supposed to, the first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. It just bothers me that right there in verse 47, verse 47 he doesn't say heavenly. Just kills me. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. It, should, it just should, right? And it doesn't. It just, it just bothers me. Then it continues on in 48. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. So you are what you are. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. This is why you need the change that God brings. How do you change you? How do you undo you? And the answer is, you don't. He does. And this is why I again tell you, when you're living and you're evaluating and you're testing, don't look at where you are. Look at where you have been. Because again, we measure success in Christian living. You know what we'll take as an answer for, for forward progress? <laughs> I will take that. Didn't look like much, did it? I will take that. that you know what we're doing right there? It's, we would love to be sprinting like Usain Bolt, you know, heading to where we're going. But you know what? I am not 6'5 or Jamaican, so I can't run that fast. Big shock. I'm not 6'5. Did you guys know that? No. <laughs> Who would have thunk that, right? So we take our progress in, in spirit sometimes where it is because sometimes the walk is hard and it is a slog and you know what? We rejoice in that slog because God has not lost us and God has not left us and he is carrying us, sometimes dragging us through. And so we celebrate this because at the end of the day, we know who is pushing, who is pulling and where we are going. This is again what Jesus told them. Go back to John 14. Do not let your heart be troubled, be troubled if I could read. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way where I am going. How? Because he has laid down a path. He has given instruction. The apostles have built upon that. They have expanded the instruction so that the questions have been answered, the challenges have been met, and we know how we are to walk. Surrendered. At peace with God, therefore at peace with the world. Because our great enemies are defeated. Where might our great enemies have been defeated, I might wonder. And because he has conquered them and cast them out, we have no fear and worry. Therefore, we can walk, and we will by his grace and mercy. This is the hope that Paul has in Romans 8. For those whom he knew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be firstborn among, among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called. And these whom he called, he justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. I love that, because do you feel glorified today? <laughs> no, you're kind of feeling like a little full and bloated because we just ate. But Paul speaks of it like it's an already occurred event. Why does he do that? Because God has promised. And if God has said, he will deliver. This is where we rest, Christian. 
This is where our hope lies, is that God has promised he will accomplish. That while we are not where we wish to be, we know we will get there because God is bringing us forward and he is carrying us along. And how do we continue on that path? By each day surrendering, fighting against sin, trusting that it is God's work that overcomes and it is God's work that carries us forward. Let's pray.